What I say to young people who are in the middle of the shittiness of it all, of a, a disease, a breakdown, whatever it might be, is just wait because sheer years on the planet sometimes is the best salve for an anxious condition. Welcome to the Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by a New York Times best-selling author, TV presenter, and blogger. Her books are sold in 131 countries around the world, and she was ranked as one of the most influential authors in the world. Her books have helped us to quit sugar, cook with zero waste, and her latest book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, looks at reframing anxiety and bipolar disorder as a philosophical and spiritual journey. The book is beautifully honest, and I am so happy to introduce you all to this wonderful woman. Welcome to the studio, Sarah Wilson. Oh, thank you so much. That was a very, very generous introduction. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm glad we could make it work. And Sarah, you, you're currently visiting London, but you're from Australia. Yeah. So I'm sorry about the weather. Uh, British people are constantly apologising for the weather. The weather, it's just wonderful. I, I feel like um, it's 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 like you take on personal responsibility. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> but it's so funny. I mean, we're having an exceptionally grey June, so I feel like that's why I was like, oh my gosh, she's from Australia. She's got you can't see us, but Sarah has beautiful brown legs and she has shorts on and she looks so Aussie. And I'm just like, oh gosh, like I'm carrying <laughs> around my umbrella. So, but anyway, less about the weather, more about you. I have so many things that I want to talk to you about today. I'd love to start off if you could, I guess, take us back and talk us through your journey so far. You've had, you had an incredible career as a journalist before you started writing your books. You were the editor of Cosmo. And I read that you have had an entrepreneurial spirit since the age of 12 years old. So where did that come from? (laughs) Well, it actually stemmed from incredible boredom as a child. I grew up in the country in what we call the bush in Australia. And people have these idyllic ideas about it. you know, that I was sort of, I don't know, riding ponies and, um, you know, swimming in beautiful rivers. It was the middle of the drought um, and we moved out to live a subsistence living lifestyle because essentially my parents were broke. They weren't, which for listeners in Australia, did you use the word broke? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So um, they weren't hippies, they weren't idealists, they just had no money and lots of kids. So we lived out there and I guess I just had nothing to do. So I started inventing business ideas and there were about three different projects I had going and I used to go into town once a fortnight and sell my wares, which were sort of doll's house furniture and hand-painted library bags and gift cards that I'd hand-paint with Australian flowers and and birds. And, um, And I would sell them in these kind of boutique giftware stores and toy shops and I made a small fortune I've got to say we I bought the family's first television 
wow with, with that cash yeah wow I love that so yeah you really were like hustling from day one I was a hustler <laughs> yeah hustler before I before I kind of really knew what it was all about I don't know how I found these stores I must have just fronted up and I was a very small immature looking 12 year old I probably looked about 10 9 or 10 when I was 12 I was one of those small kids yeah but you had the confidence so you said you had uh, lots of siblings so where are you in the are you the oldest mm, I'm the, the oldest the oldest yeah, okay yeah, I'm king of the kids right and do you think that helped <laughs> with your confidence then well, it's funny you should say confidence because my family would describe me as somebody who was incredibly shy and I always have been. I'm very reserved and and I still am to this day in many ways. However, there's some kind of bulldozer element and to my, to my personality um, where if I have an idea in my head, it's almost like everything else shuts down and I just go straight for it and I will not give up until I arrive there. Um, so I think I had that as a kid and I, I have it to this day. And I would say it's got a lot to do with my anxiety. My anxiety propels me to move beyond where I'm at, beyond sort of boredom and kind of nothingness and blahness and kind of, I don't know, um, a numbness. And it will ricochet me into areas where I'm scared out of my brains, but I have to do it anyway. It's almost like this competition of forces. And I think that was happening as a kid. And I, and I describe it in my book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, that it all happened at the same time as my anxiety took place and started to take hold. I was, I was sent to a doctor at about sort of about 12 years old and I was diagnosed with childhood anxiety because I wasn't sleeping. Um, and then it also happened at the same time as a kind of obsession with spirituality. Uh, I started reading the Bible. I started investigating different churches and mum and dad would go into town to church each Sunday and I would go and investigate other religions. And, you know, I'd be in tears and I'd be trying to understand it all. And I'd look around and not understand why everybody else was getting this thing that I couldn't put my finger on. So in the book, I kind of bring those three forces together and say it's no coincidence that this drive outwards and onwards into life my anxiety and my spiritual quest all happened at the same time mm. and probably at the same time as hormonal stuff right you yeah. know and it's yeah it's really interesting actually because I guess with all of those things that you're describing it's like seeking for answers you know as you said yeah. so whether it's through spirituality whether it's through even just the world at that age and thinking well why does is this happen like that why is it this way and I think someone who I can really relate to that actually and kind of asking questions and being like well why and yeah. how and what next and just constantly trying to yeah I think understand things on a deeper level than just the surface that we're presented that's like this is what it is end of story. And I think our culture um, has steered us down to uh, a point where we don't ask those questions. You know, we're encouraged to buy something to solve things rather than to go and find the answer. And we're even bought, you know, sold um, self-help messages, you know, and it's ironic that in some ways my book probably presents itself as a, as a self-help book, but I make a lot of effort in the book to say, hey, this is my journey and I pose questions and really all I want to do is make us all feel less lonely in that quest and, um, you know, I think there's not a lot of support if you are somebody wanting to ask those questions. And so I think that that's why anxiety is more prevalent today because there's not the forum, the outlet for these kinds of discussions. And, you know, Adrienne, I was, I was 
I say this really openly in the book, in the first chapter, I think, like my friend Rick, who funnily enough is my British friend who's just moved back to the UK and I'm staying with him up the road from this very studio where we're talking this morning. Um, He said to me, why are you writing this book? And I said, because I want to feel less lonely and I want to be less bored. I want to ask the questions. I want to start the conversation. So the book is a conversation. And I think the subtitle is a conversation, a new conversation about anxiety. So it's not like a self-help manual for, you know, getting your shit together. It's, it really is just a conversation. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's great. And so I want to take it back a little bit. So as you said, you, you're entrepreneurial, then you, you know, went into journalism, had a wonderful career there. And then in your mid thirties, you, you were struck down with a thyroid disease. And so that must have come, you know, as, as a shock because you had no prior health problems, right? Well, yeah, actually my, in my early twenties, I developed my first autoimmune disease. In fact, no, I'll backtrack when I was 11 or 12 Mm -hmm. around that same time, I got glandular fever and um, went down pretty heavy with it. Again, I see it all as the same picture. It struck again uh, in my early 20s. I was 21 and I first developed Graves' disease, which is a form of thyroid disease. That happened at the same time I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, And so, again, connected. What comes first, chicken or the egg? I don't know. But the treatment for it is the same, which is, again, something I discuss in the book. Um, And then at 34, my um, thyroid kind of, you know, super imploded um, and became what's called Hashimoto's disease. And I'm sure there'll be very many people listening um, who either know somebody who's got it or have it themselves, because I think it is on the increase. I see it as a disease, an inflammatory disease that is related to that existential angst I feel it's a disease that strikes people down uh, who need to be struck down. And that's very much how I see it. It's a bit woo-woo, I know, but it happened when I needed to be stopped in my tracks. I was editor of Cosmo. I'd had a really bad breakup. I was burning the candle at both ends and something had to stop me before before I went off on a path that was going to be probably destructive for the rest of my life. Um, And... You know, I can look back now and join the dots and I can see it was necessary. It's really hard at the time to kind of know. And when I speak to people who are in the middle of what I was in back then, I say to them, please trust your instinct that this is going to lead you somewhere. And it did lead me somewhere. It led me to stop moved to an army shed in the forest outside Byron Bay, which is this kind of real hippie area in, in, um, in Australia. And it was there that I just basically went, I've got to heal myself. I had no money. I couldn't work. I wrote a column for a newspaper magazine. And in that, I'd investigated ways to get better. And one of my columns one week was about quitting sugar. And what do you know, the business built from there. Famous words. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was um, – you know, it, it just was one thing led to another. Twitter was invented while I was living in that army shed. And so I started to experiment with Twitter. Um, so I was very fortunate to be able to kind of come in at the beginning of the social media movement. Yeah, the timing. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting then, again, what you just said about, you know, what when sometimes when things happen, as you said, it struck you down, it stopped you when you needed to be stopped. And I think often when people, when something does happen like that, whether it's a physical illness, a mental illness, whether it's things happen sometimes that literally stop you, change your entire life. And at the time you can think, 
this is awful. Why me? I'm never going to recover from this. You don't at that time, you don't think, oh, look on the bright side. I'm going to turn my life around. But it is interesting that for so many people who've experienced that, it's a curse that becomes a blessing because as you said it then makes you reevaluate maybe yeah. your life the way you're living and for some people it's their almost their salvation it is it absolutely is um i refer to anxiety as my superpower and i don't know if you saw that in the book um but it's because it's almost my moral or values compass it's really hard to kind of stake your territory in terms of what matters to you in our culture today and what I know is that my anxiety is the thing that tells me. I mean, it's violent, it's rude, it's painful. It's not the most pleasant way to be steered in the right direction, but it's essentially what it has done and I can see that now. And the other thing I say in the book, I, I say this a lot, I say this in the book, however, I always feel self-conscious that, oh, you may have read it, you know, so I've got to kind of, you know, acknowledge that. But um, Steve Jobs has a really great anecdote. He did a He did a Uh, an address, you know, one of those graduation addresses um, at Stanford. And he refers to this notion that um, often life is about looking back and joining the dots. At the time, you don't know where it's all heading. But as you get older, you can look back and see that the dots all make sense, right? And he pulled out of university um, and sat in on, I think, a graphics course or a typography course. And at the time, he didn't know what he was doing. But of course, that led to the the, the beauty and the really iconic... Um, Pixar Studios. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All of that, right? Yeah. Um, so he... he, he I think that that really sticks with me. And what I say to young people who are in the middle of the shittiness of it all, of a, a disease, a breakdown, whatever it might be, is just wait because sheer years on the planet sometimes is the best salve for an anxious condition or any kind of condition because you can turn around and look back and go, all right, this is beginning to make sense, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. it's definitely hard to do it at the time. But I guess, as you said, you started, so you wrote the the article about I Quit Sugar, which I don't know how it then evolved to what it became, but, you know, the I Quit Sugar book and the I Quit Sugar movement, I'm sure so many people are going to be like, oh, my gosh, yes, like I have that book on my kitchen windowsill because I do. And I remember buying it, actually. I tweeted you at the time. So, yeah, Twitter, uh, you are very active on Twitter. So I think you tweeted me back. This was years ago. And it was after I basically felt like I was experiencing a sugar hangover. So I was somebody who can, you know, I've probably always said my whole life, I'm a self-confessed sugar addict. I'm like, I love sugar. I'm a sweet tooth. All those things that we say. And I think it was actually after Easter weekend and I'd had so much chocolate, so much sugar that I actually went out for a run. Um, I'm a runner. I run in the mornings and I felt terrible on this run. I felt so bad. I felt hungover. Yeah. I hadn't drunk any alcohol, but I'd had so much sugar that weekend. And I honestly felt like, I think I stopped at the side of the road and kind of sat there just being like, wow, I feel dizzy. I feel weird. I feel terrible. Like I'm going to have to walk home. And I think I then ordered, I quit sugar and was like, right, I'm going to quit sugar. And I mean, honestly, it, I'm probably still working on it. I go through phases. I've definitely reduced my sugar a lot. But point is, you must have helped. It must be so incredibly rewarding for you. I read that your program, your eight-week I Quit Sugar program has helped 1.5 million people. It's been completed by 1.5 million people. That's incredible. Like It must be so rewarding for you to think, actually, all of those people that you've helped. Yeah. Um, One of the things I love about it is that, you know, um, it was always an invitation. It's I quit sugar. I gave it a go. This is how I did it. If you'd like to try it, this might help you. It wasn't ever you must quit sugar. 
you know, and it's been really interesting. I've been backwards and forwards from the UK since, you know, since the beginning, really, and um, observed how it's all shifted. The debate has shifted. And when I first came over, I was considered to be, uh, you know, somebody who is pushing a dangerous diet, you know. But it's incredible now, isn't it? It's accepted that sugar is, is really not great for you, you know. It's causing all kinds of problems, including mental health. That's It's one of the biggest causes of anxiety because we now know that it's not a chemical imbalance in the brain that science is actually an absolute furphy um, the more convincing science at the moment is that it's a, a, a gut imbalance and of course uh, sugar being a major major culprit um, with gut dysbiosis um, it causes inflammation there that then travels up into the brain and of course 80 percent of serotonin is produced in the gut not in the brain. Um, so anyway, I diverged there. But yeah, look, I am incredibly grateful for, I guess, I don't know, the reception that eventually I was able to get, you know, when people started to just try it and it worked for them. Um, and you can't unlearn it, right? You know, you might say that you're still sort of trying to sort of balance out your sugar intake, but you're not going to drink fruit juice any longer because you know it's got the same amount of sugar as a, as a glass of Coca-Cola, yeah. you know. You can't unlearn this shit. Mm. And um, I think that's the most wonderful thing about it is that it's actually empowered people, even if they're still eating a bit of sugar because we – God, life's hard. Mm. We all get out of balance. But and sometimes can- it's like a – for me anyway, it's certainly the way it's changed for me is that I think I'm so much more, as you said, aware of it. It's not that I don't have it anymore ever, but I think I used to have it unconsciously. I used to probably have sugar every day and I was yeah. just kind of like – I thought it was normal to kind of you know feel the I don't know I just think I'm so much more it's a ratty guess, feeling isn't it yeah it's and, a it's, ratty and it's an addiction like it's so addictive yeah. I've read that sugar is more addictive than you know some illegal substances yeah heroin yeah mm-hmm. and I just think I've tried them so I can't compare but I feel like addiction is the word I feel like yeah. when you when you when I first decided I was like I'm gonna quit sugar and I definitely was trying to I think it was too extreme for me and I was like it was too much I wasn't you know perhaps doing it in a way that was just like I'll just go savory and like that just didn't work for me however what I do now is that obviously I'm aware all sugar is sugar so it's not necessarily about you know fructose or this sugar or the argument that goes on there yeah, maple but, syrup or honey or, or, or whatever or, yeah it's yeah. still sugar but I think that's something that I do now is like I'll have some dates or I'll have you know but I know that it's you're conscious it's, of it I'm you're, conscious of it you're choosing it rather yeah. than being sucked into it blindly mm. and I think that that's what we all wish for right we want to be alive we want to be alive to our choices and so many people feel disempowered mm. um, so once you start to learn this stuff even just the basics of it you know uh, about how to read a label um the fact that fruit juice now um you know i remember when i said it eight years ago i was considered a a nutcase but now the who uh, a year and a half ago came out and declared fruit juice added sugar it is officially added sugar the same as coca-cola so once you know that stuff you can steer your choices you can make a choice and you can go into it with your eyes wide open but you probably are aware that Almost exactly a year ago, so it was May 31st last year, I shut down the business um, and it was for a whole bunch of reasons and it's only led to incredible abundance. Um, Of course, the books are still going, but I gave all my money um, to charity and so that's, that's now what I do is I work on projects the next projects, essentially, um, are very much based around the climate crisis. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is my, my pet 
obsession at the moment so mm, which yeah. i mean is again is something that i feel like you're you have a habit of being ahead of the curve so with the sugar or with you know even with climate change i know it's a big conversation that is happening now obviously it's not uh, we're not doing enough but i feel like even you know a year ago two years ago it wasn't as it, the spotlight wasn't there and it really really is now and as i said i feel like you are yeah you seem to be uh who, who is it Nostrad- nostradamus yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> could you tell us what's coming in the, in the next decade Sarah? but also with it's so interesting how you I guess, you know, straight away you're connecting it all to, as you said, how you feel, your mental health, the gut, it's all connected. And I think that's yeah. something as well that is is being highlighted now is that it's not just about, okay, if you're talking about sugar, you're talking about diet. If you're talking about uh, yoga or, or running, you're talking about exercise. It's like, no, these things are all connected to our mental health, our physical health. Those two things are one. We're not, a men- you know, we don't have a mind and a body that are separate. It's yeah. all connected. And so I think with everything that we do and, and, you know, a lot of the things that you talk about within the book, we all essentially are, are trying to answer those questions. As we said, how can I feel better? How can I live a life that I love? How can I feel vibrant and happy and fulfilled? And those go hand in hand, whether it is your diet, whether it's your exercise routine, whether it's your spiritual journey. I think finally, I think it's all kind of being looked at as one package. Yeah, there's a different type of discussion that happens now. And it's not just on the fringes, you know, we're not all the you know, woo-woo types wearing fisherman pants in lotus position, you know. Um, It's a far more interesting debate as well, and I think the science has caught up. In fact, the science has always been there. It's just that the way that science, especially when we're talking about the human body works, it requires years of, um, you know, stringent kind of checks and balances to ensure that it's gold standard. And it's almost impossible to have gold standard science when it comes to nutrition and, and anything to do with well-being because you're dealing with the human body. But um, yeah, science is, is really starting to catch up to what we all intuitively know. And that is that um, in many ways we're living a life that's off kilter with what we truly want and what's truly best for us and the planet, you know. Um, it's funny though, um, a lot of people when first we make the Beast Beautiful came out said, oh, gosh, you've jumped off in a new direction. I'm like, no, this is a continuation. Yeah. And you probably know that I cover off um, – the diet aspect as well as the exercise aspect in the book. Um, it's a really big part of the picture, you know, um, and it's, yeah, as I say, it's a continuation. And then I moved into the food waste space. Um, and again, that's a continuation um, because once you become alive to various choices that you make and become alive to yourself and your connection with the planet and others, all this stuff just comes at you. You start to see it for real, you know. And as you said before, you can't unlearn it. You can't unlearn it. You can't unsee it. And, um, you know, the next book that I'm working on at the moment, which I'm trying to write while traveling, um, is, is, is about waking up to all of this and reconnecting back in so that we can bring all of this stuff together and help each other and move humanity forward so that hopefully we can survive on this planet a bit longer than what's been kind of forecast yeah Mm. yikes I mean it is it's scary stuff but as you said you know everything it you know is becoming more of a common conversation like you said you know 10 years ago a decade ago even maybe five years ago you know the wellness people and people that were talking about you know maybe ayurvedic or different alternative medicines and therapies they were like this as you said kind of club of like people being like oh it's really woo woo and like where's the science and i think now it's far more mainstream it's far more you know accepted and with physical health and and mental health i think but not as much and so in in the early start of the book you mentioned 
about wearing a mask and feeling like you wearing a mask and that other people are wearing a mask and that I really I don't know it really stood out to me that concept of like not wanting to take off that mask and show that actually maybe underneath you feel terrible that day or you feel anxious or you feel you know frantic and stressed and why do you think so many of us are still even though the topic of mental health is more common now why do you think so many of us are still afraid to take that mask off yeah well it's funny with depression I think there's more discussion around it I think we've had that discussion for a good decade or two now um, and we we appreciate what you know where depression comes from and how it, it you know expresses itself with anxiety it's slightly different um because almost it's almost like we wear anxiety as a badge of honor to be busy to be frantic to be running from one thing to the next is has cachet in our culture right you know and so it's actually that stigma that we've got to fight through not so much the stigma of it's a bad thing to be able to say you can't cope because I think we're kind of cool with that now it's more about um our culture is so vested in toggling and being frenetic and all the stuff that basically emulates the anxious experience, right, that we can't disconnect from it. We're wedded to it. We're vested in it. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge. Um, And a lot of people, the feedback I get from the book is a lot of people read it and go, oh, my God, I had no idea I have anxiety. Um, you know, I live like this and I'm I'm sort of encouraged by culture, you know, by my workplace, by my kids, by everyone around me to be that frenetic person. Or celebrated as a, as a high achiever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The A-type personality, right? It kind of comes with that and there's a price to be paid. And some of it, a lot of us are getting fed up with it because it's not sustainable and it doesn't nourish us. So I think that's probably a big part of the stigma. Um, it's not so much about, yeah, confessing to not coping or having a problem, you know. And one thing I will say is there is a distinction between what I call fair enough anxiety, which is, I mean, the flight or fight response is absolutely vital um, to the human experience. It's kept us alive, you know, and um, it, it dictates a lot of what we do today. And having a healthy flight or fight response is great. Some of us, have, a, however, have a flight or fight response which has either got a bit deranged or is just a little bit intense. And one thing that I will point out to people is that when we're talking about anxious disorders, so let's say obsessive-compulsive disorder, bipolar um, and so on, the rates um, of that in the community has not changed. So in any community around the world, whether it's here in London, whether it's in the you know, Sahara or the Amazon, it's around about 1.4% of the population have OCD and have bipolar, etc. And that hasn't shifted. And then what I find interesting about that is that evolutionary biologists have said this is because we've always needed a percentage of the population to have almost this evolutionary quirk where we're overly sensitive. So it's usually, for instance, um, people with OCD were often shaman or community leaders because they had heightened sense of sanitation and safety, right? We needed that. Um, When um, bipolar kind of types were generally the people that when he invented things, you know, I sort of make the joke in the book that it was probably a bipolar person that went over the hill that everyone was too scared to go over and went, came back and went, hey, guys, they've invented this thing called the wheel. We should get onto it, you know. And throughout history, wartime leaders, poets, um, you know, everyone from Charles Darwin, Winston Churchill, Virginia Woolf, I mean, incredible thought leaders and people who have taken the human experience to the next level had bipolar disorder. Um, 
that's something that we are now familiar with. And I think it's actually really worth reflecting on that. You know, it was only in 1980 that these conditions were deemed a disorder in an official manner in the UK, Australia and the US. Uh, Before that, there was a little bit more acceptance that these things existed for a reason and that, you know, Winston Churchill, some of the biggest political leaders in the world had mental disorders. It was kind of just part and parcel. Um, So... I make that distinction between everyday anxiety and then this disordered anxiety. If we're talking everyday anxiety, I do think that's on the increase. And not just because... not just because that people have uh, are getting more anxious at a biological level, it's more about life, right? Lifestyle, Lifestyle emulates the anxious experience. Like the mother who runs from soccer training to ballet practice with the kids and then frantically makes 15 phone calls on the way and is, you know, updating her Instagram profile as she goes, etc. All of that toggling is essentially the anxious experience, you know? Um and so when you start to see that sort of the, the whole picture in that way, you start to see ways of shifting and, yeah. and, and actually creating change in your life. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear it that way because I think it is just about reframing these labels of, you know, what we consider. As you said, that person who said to you, oh, I didn't realise that I had anxiety or I didn't realise because maybe she just had never had it positioned to her in that way before and it's kind of allowed her to, yeah, to see something that might be called a disorder or a mental illness and actually accept that it's just a part of her. It doesn't define her. It's just it's part of, as you said, the human experience. How old's your son? My son's going to be eight tomorrow. Eight. Oh, oh, bless. Um, So I get a lot of parents coming to me and saying, what about childhood anxiety? And I'm sure that with your son, you've got parents talking about it, you know, in the schoolyard, et cetera, right? And a lot of people are concerned that that teenagers and young people or children are are suffering anxiety more so than ever before. Well, it was really interesting. I looked into this after the book came out and – There was a British study that looked into this as well, which was wonderful. It came out only about six months ago, if anyone wants to look it up. But what it found was is that conditions are no more anxiety-inducing for children today. I mean, if you cast your mind back to World War II, I mean, kids were being bombed, you know, and had to run into air raid shelters, you know, after school, you know. I mean, that's anxiety-inducing, right? And there's been all kinds of periods throughout history where, you know, the 1980s were really tough times, you know, here in Britain, there's been recessions, et cetera, et cetera. So what's going on today that's making everybody feel that, you know, we're suffering more? Partly awareness, of course, but this study showed that it's got to do with resilience. And the big problem today is that kids are almost being distracted away from pain and from a, from from boredom and a bunch of other things, right? So, you know, parents are really scared of their child sitting there saying I'm bored, so they throw an iPad at them um, or run them off to soccer or ballet practice or whatever it might be. And so there's this kind of culture that we live in where we run from the pain of life, okay, the discomfort, and then we shield our children from it. And um, what that's doing is actually lessening our resilience for when everyday stuff happens that is maybe a little bit anxiety inducing so we're not coping so it's not that times are more anxious it's that we're not coping we've lost our ability to cope and we're actually preventing children from developing those skills and to my mind that is more of an alarming condition because anxiety has been something that we've had to deal with all throughout history and the inability or preventing our children from coping with it that's new 
And that is scary. And I think that I always try to find an opportunity to drop that into a conversation like this because I think there's probably a lot of parents listening and I think they're kind of wondering what to do about this and what they're seeing. And I think the best thing you can do is expose your kids to the hardship of life. Yeah, that is, you know what, it's so interesting. I'm sitting here like nodding along. Yeah, I can see. (laughs) Seriously, it's so interesting to hear you say that and also so boldly because I feel like, honestly, as a parent and you're almost sometimes afraid. You're not allowed to talk about this stuff. You have to to sit on the fence. You're not allowed to have, you know, like a strong opinion on things like this because I think, especially for someone like me, you know, I don't know how to, to word it, but I think what you touched on then about discomfort and resilience, I see that. I see that a lot and I think that, it's something that I challenge myself to think about a lot because I do think that as you said you know I think back to my own childhood my own experience and you know times when I think you know whether it's high school whether it was kids can be mean whether it was things that you had to do that you didn't want to do or you know discomfort boredom all of these things and actually I do think that you know I've heard someone say recently about you know the next generation are too soft and then people just people don't want to hear that and they kind of go oh you know how can you because parents are thinking they're doing the best by their children there's a lot of guilt as well because and this is something that I've sort of picked up on since and talked to a few experts about because I wanted to get to the bottom of it um parents are feeling guilty about their own probably lack of attention lack of engagement with life because they're all distracted with their own devices and everything so they're overcompensating Um, So parents are are really trying to do the right thing, but they're actually preventing their kids from from developing the skills that they need to cope with life going forward. But, yeah, I mean, it is something that you're not allowed to talk about. And I'm a childless woman, you know, in my mid-40s. And and I would say that um, if anyone's not allowed to talk about it, it would be me. But, you know, bugger it. It's got to be said, you know. And I'm not – I really don't want to point the finger or blame anyone. I just really want to invite people to start to think about things differently for the sake of their kids. Yeah, and again, it is. It's it's, it's the conversation. And I think actually when you said about failure and about, you know, I'm very conscious of that. You have to learn to fail. If you can't learn to fail, you know, for example, in I think team sports, you know, I'm I'm a runner and and I love all sports and I encourage people to get their kids into sport regardless of whether they're good. You know, it's not about, oh, well, they're not sporty or they're not good at swimming or they're not good at running. Fine it doesn't matter you don't have to only do the things you're good at and actually when it's a great way to learn to fail it's a great way to learn team responsibility it's a great way to learn that someone else is better than you and that's okay because like like you said later on in life you might have I don't know a work interview or a a work colleague or an opportunity whatever it is where you're not going to be the best and that's okay and if you've never experienced it before special yeah Do you know what I mean? Like that is so important as well. We've swung the pendulum too far to kind of over, you know, I'm using my quote fingers here, over empowering ourselves. Like as though, you know, and we all know about this notion of telling kids that they're great and, and, you know. And you're the best. You're the best. And we know that's not great for them, you know. Going back to the boredom thing though, you know, because right at the beginning of the conversation you asked me about my entrepreneurial spirit. It would not have kicked off unless I had been bored to smithereens with no access to anything. And, you know, I used to sit up in a tree. I used to get up in the morning, have breakfast, and then there'd be nothing to do. So I'd go and sit up in a tree and I'd dream up stuff. And it was – my parents were nowhere to be seen. We were out of the house in the morning. We came back in the evening. And, you know, they didn't know what we did, you know. And um, You didn't have Netflix and an iPad and a Kindle. No, we had goats. Yeah, (laughs) goats and a a dried-up dam. Um, So – 
so yeah, it was in those hours of nothingness and tedium that I kind of invented stuff, you know. And so where is the inventive spirit going to come from um, if we don't give our kids a lot of really tedious boredom. You yeah, know? the opportunity to discover yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Gosh, I could talk about this for a long time. I know, I know. I'm move it I can on. see more questions on your notepad. Yes, I'm <laughs> going to move it on because I want to talk to you about the Power Hour. I encourage people on this show to take an hour in the morning for themselves. First thing in the morning, I believe that the first hour of the day is so powerful when you first wake up full of, you know, ideas, thoughts, energy. And I believe you should, yeah, take time for yourself, reclaim your time. So I'd love to know, Sarah, what time do you wake up in the morning and what's the first hour of your day like? I wake up around about six o'clock, wherever I am in the world. Um, I'm an insomniac, so sometimes it'll be later if, I've had to take a sleeping tablet. And yes, I'm upfront about taking medication when I have to. As John Lennon said, whatever gets you through the night. Um, so, but generally it'll be six o'clock. Um, I get up, I drink hot water and some lemon juice. And I I actually, and I think what's and all here, right? We can talk about it. I, I have uh, problems with my stomach. So I sit in a squat position. Um, and I actually flick through a few of my overnight emails while I'm doing that, um, but in a quite a light way. Um, and then I'm able to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So it's a technique if anyone has has uh, constipation. The, water as well. the hot water, yeah. yeah. And I'll have several glasses of it, and I'll just sit there and sort of come to basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I then get out of the house. I, it's of non-negotiable. I get out and I exercise. And I shouldn't even use the word exercise. I move. So I've chosen to live near the ocean. I'm sorry, everybody who's in Britain listening to this, but um, I live right on Bondi Beach and I've made that choice so that I can get out and sand run or ocean swim. So I swim across Bondi, um, even on the days when the shark alarm goes off, and, um, and then run back and then I meditate. So I do exercise. It might be a yoga class if it's a – I have class pass. And so I just look up whatever's available. If it's bad weather, I look up a class and I go to that, Pilates or or yoga, um, or I try to exercise outside. Then I go and um, meditate directly after exercise. So I sit down and meditate for 20 minutes and I use um, the Vedic style with a mantra. It just works for me. Um, I try to do it outside looking into the sun um, to get vitamin D. And then I come back, shower, and I start my day and I start my day actually because I work from home I go to a cafe nearby and I spend my first half hour um, going through emails and just warming up for the day and you've already had your time before those I've had my time this is still actually quite a languid experience because I'm out in you know amongst people I know the cafe owners it's there's a bit of a crew of us who all work from home and we head out and and Australia has a very early start to the day so at 7.38 everybody's up and going you know most people are down at the beach at 5 30 in the morning um yeah so um that's that's how I do it and look in the book I cover this off and I was so stoked to come on to your podcast because I love this idea of talking about a morning routine and you'd know this some of the biggest thought leaders in the world they all have a morning routine and you probably know the science behind it about decision theory right it ties in with the anxiety debate because the anxious part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is the same part of the brain that controls the decision-making process because they evolved at the same time, almost when we emerged as, you know, 
humans, mammals from out of the, the primordial soup. And what actually happens is it's a, such an ancient part of the brain, it can only do th- one thing at once. I'm putting this very crudely. But when you've got to make too many decisions, it can make you anxious. When you're anxious, you can't make decisions. And so this science, as you probably know, is all about limiting the number of decisions you make in the morning so it can free up your kind of psychic space so that you don't get anxious and you can make more important decisions later. So the more you can automate your morning routine and that's why I don't make it complicated I don't drive to a gym apart from the fact I don't own a car which again is about reducing decisions and also forcing myself to do exercise and move instead of toggling around in a car Um, so I don't you know drive to a gym sit on a treadmill drive home to the because that just adds layers of complication I I just get up and I get out the door yeah I couldn't have said it better myself Sarah especially with as you said the automation and decision making and I think often if people don't have a morning routine they think oh this is another thing Adrienne it's another thing I've got to add to my to-do list now I've got to get up and do this or that and actually as you said once it becomes a habit it's all about making it a habit I believe the morning that's why it's a routine right is because you don't I'm sure wake up and think what 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 am I going to do first what am I going to do next it's like no you get your water you do your steps and it's actually for a lot of people who who in the last month was actually mental health awareness month here in the yes. uk and i talked a lot with people about their morning routines and why actually if, if they do suffer mental illness it can be a really useful framework to have steps yeah. to follow in the morning because it takes away that decision fatigue yeah. of having to make choices that's right yeah. and i travel a lot and people say oh, how do you do it when you're traveling it's non-negotiable for me. Once it becomes a habit in your brain and it's non-negotiable, therefore you don't have that stupid debate in the morning, oh, is this my, you know, exercise day or my non-exercise day? No. Even if it's 10 minutes of walking. I mean, so when I'm travelling, it's still non-negotiable. I will meditate in the cab if I have to. I will... um, I will run the fire stairs in a hotel in Hong Kong if I have to, if that's the only way I can get some exercise done. There's, you know, you make it work. You make it non-negotiable and it just becomes part of having a good life, you know. Brilliant. Oh, I love it. Mm. So do you have a challenge? I ask the the guest each week to give us a challenge for the listeners to try. And it can be anything. I mean, we've covered so many different things today, but it can be anything that they could try this week, maybe for in their power hour in the morning. It could be 10 minutes, an hour. What do you think? Oh, gosh, the first thing that comes to mind is something I've been talking about um, with some friends here. I, it's going to sound really, really cheesy and I don't normally talk in this kind of way, but I've noticed that eye contact in, in London is a difficult thing to find. And I find that if I'm walking down the street and I see people and I smile at them, a shift starts to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Some people get really kind of freaked out by it, but if you can find the right person, I think, I think it can really start to shift the way that we live, you know, with each other on this planet. Um, and so... Yeah, the challenge I might suggest is looking up and smiling at people rather than darting your eyes away when someone looks at you in the street and just see what starts to happen. I mean, I have a, I love the phrase, there's a Hindi phrase and I don't know what it is in Sanskrit, but it's something along the lines of let us see, as in let us, you, me, and the whole kind of mechanics of life, see what happens when we make a subtle shift. And I often do that. I create these little experiments and it's amazing just that alertness when you start to see a shift in things and that's enough um, to kind of change your whole day. So I think if you can add that to your morning routine. 
Yeah, yeah, that sounds beautiful. Thank you. And before I ask you my closing question, Sarah, I'd love to know, can you tell us where people can find you online? Where can they get the book? Yep. All right, so my website is sarahwilson.com. Pretty much everything is there. Um, and my I Quit Sugar books are available in most bookstores around the UK as well as First We Make the Beast Beautiful. You can also buy the digital version and the audio version via my website. And on Instagram, oh, look, if you look up Sarah Wilson, and I've got like little, what is it, underscores, yep. like little feet on the end of my name, um, you'll find me there. And I, I, track a lot of my hiking journeys um you can actually on instagram stories follow a lot of my hiking journeys i know a lot of people like to do that yeah, yeah awesome. get inspiration great check it out okay so my closing question which i asked every guest is all about time i am so grateful that you've given us an hour of your time today sarah so thank you for that i truly believe that time is the most valuable thing that we can give to another person so i'd love to know what is the most valuable thing that time has taught you yeah I would say that sitting in time and sitting through it and the pain of it sometimes is really powerful. So I think a lot of young people in particular get very frantic and upset that they're wasting time, right? I remember that feeling. It consumed me. And what I would say is that over time, I'm I'm now 45, um, and I'm very much at that point where life's no longer a run-up. It's not about preparing frantically for some magical time when you arrive. I've realized, my God, this is it, right? So a lot of what I do now is when I'm feeling frantic and I feel like I'm wasting time, I literally just sit in the shittiness of that and let it pass through me. Sometimes you can't go over things. You can't go around them. You've just got to go through them. And that is probably the most powerful interaction I now have with my time on this planet and what it does at the age of 45 where you know in the past this was our life expectancy right yikes. Um, I know yikes <laughs> um, it, it actually means that time is actually far more enjoyable and nourishing and it, at no point anymore do I feel like I'm wasting time yeah wow thank you so much i'm and sounding honestly, old with that aren't no, I? <laughs> no, well if, if you could see sarah i actually want to see your id because there's no way anyone would believe that this woman is 45 oh, bless. you look incredible so whatever you're doing this morning routine the i quit show is working for you sarah you thank look you. amazing <laughs> and yeah i just really would encourage you to dive deeper into sarah wilson's work into like she said the website the books you know we could have talked for hours today there's so many topics that i know we could go deep 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 on and and I just wish we had more time to do that. So yeah, get involved, follow on Instagram, find out, get the book and just go deeper. You won't regret it. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. That was a wonderful hour. <laughs> Fab. Take care, everyone. See ya. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 